Well, good day and welcome to With All Due Respect from Eternity. I'm Michael Jensen and she is... Megan Pell-Dutois. It's great to have you with us and uh, we're going to really take on something very difficult today. It's the Church and Damage Control, the Royal Commission, George Pell, Cardinal Pell, and the movie Spotlight. For argument's sake, where we take a debate, cut out the party politics and try to talk it out. Well, what we're looking at in For Argument's Sake today is uh, the church in the wake of the Royal Commission, the conviction of uh, George Pell, and and what damage that's done to the church. And we're not, to be very clear, we're not um, just talking about reputational damage, but taking a serious look at where does the church go from here in a way that is honouring to God. Yeah, I mean, that's uh, that's the goal here. But my goodness, what a difficult thing to speak about and to speak into. And uh, we should say at the beginning, we're aware that this may have affected people uh, mm. here quite personally. And uh, we we want to urge you that we're not offering therapeutic advice or anything like this, but uh, we, we want to urge you to seek help if you need to. Um, and we'll put some links onto the show notes for that. We will. And part of that is... Uh, asking, or at least we, we want to be the church that's ready to listen and take things seriously. Do you think we're ready to listen, Megan? Have you seen this a, a change in attitude over over this kind of issue? I think there's more awareness, and I also think some of the change of leadership in the last 20 years in terms of some generational difference to how it's being approached that's helping. Um, but I, I do think people need to know... Um, that they will be believed and trusted. And I still think there's a lot to do with that, partly just in terms of the reputation of when you hear all of this and you think, well, people weren't believed. But I actually think also, in reality, there's still work to be done um, from my experience in terms of people being taken properly seriously. So you're, you're, you're saying that people, when they come forward, sometimes they, they're still not met with great responses. Church leaders haven't yet, the penny hasn't dropped for some. Yeah, because I think that there is a movement from the general to the specific. And, and when you look at particular examples, that they have real people in them and real traumatised people and they don't present as, as, as clear-cut as they might be by the time we get a, a digested story. I mean, even with the story that we've got now, um, people, church leaders are still saying, oh, is it true? Um, and leaving aside the legality of that, I think... Um, there needs to be still, I think, that greater awareness of, um, you know, that we we do acknowledging our own bias that we too tend to believe nicely presented people in positions of authority. Absolutely. So I'll, I'll recall a, a, a story that uh, happened to me about twenty five years ago, um, without making it too specific. But there was a church leader in in our diocese who was accused of of uh, an, an act of abuse and um, I remember talking with some friends who had been at, at his church mm. and they knew both the victim and the leader, uh, the church leader. Uh, what had happened was the victim and and the, the parent, one of the parents had gone to one of our bishops and the bishops had said, oh, it couldn't possibly be that guy. That guy's yeah. a good guy. And when I talked to my friends who'd been at the church, they said, yeah, that 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 that, that woman is, uh, yeah, she clearly not stable and, uh, oh, he's a great guy. And, of course, it turned out he didn't let it confessed. Um, and so that really was a, a, a real change for me because I realized that just assuming that this upstanding guy who had all the right connections in church circles mm. was innocent because of who he was and just assuming because this, uh, this person 
was was not not like that was was perhaps a little eccentric or whatever it might have mm. been assuming that he was innocent then is not was not right that in fact we shouldn't have been so trusting and he was not above accountability in fact and some of that i think is um, this will come out a bit when we talk about Spotlight, I think, in the way they address it. But p- part of that is the network of relationships as well. So we, we do tend to trust someone we know more, and, and that's a human thing. Um, but we need to understand that people can even can sort of silo off parts of themselves and even relationship come across quite well. Um, but that doesn't mean that they're not capable of something. And I think that we're seeing that with people like John Howard's response to Pell in that, um, like, where people are saying, oh, this is bad because he's the Prime Minister. But actually, apparently, he had a relationship with Pearl. And so he's actually showing something very human. But unfortunately, because he's Prime Minister, he needs to be able to... He, or what, Sorry, he was Prime Minister. He needs to get past that. Um, we need to be able to not have a, a suspicion of everyone immediately, but when something comes to hand, um, be able to go look... <laughs> we've seen before that someone can present really well. Well, exactly. I've, I've met the Cardinal myself and uh, he was affable and uh, interesting and um, friendly. And, I, you know, from my personal interactions, there, there would be no suspicions at all. But that's irrelevant, yeah. it seems to me, because that's of why exactly we have the nature a, of this a legal of process. And that's why we need to ask questions and, and, and have processes in place, which fortunately I think that's one thing that the church churches have been doing in various number of years, depending on the denomination, but have had processes that try to seek to counteract that sense of you can't question authority or some of the relational networks that are there that people find hard to go against. Or Yeah, and I think it's worth saying that even though the Royal Commission came out last last year, 2017, 2018, and those findings, um, we do know that there are denominations who've been working on these for a long time. So it's not as if there had been no no response before the Royal Commission. It's worth mm. just saying that, uh, that, that it's not as if we're now scrambling to get our, our house in order. But there's still, that's also to, to say there's still much work to do. And, and processes are imperfect and need to be fine-tuned, I think. And, um, and I still, um, whenever I put something out in public, uh, I still have people contact me every time to tell me stories. Yes, yes. And, and I mean, uh, that's one of the, the roles someone like uh, you can play is actually in just in, in that advocacy, uh, in writing something. It's interesting how that then you then get people telling you stories. Um, why do you think we got into such trouble? Do you, was there something in churches that made us prone, more prone to this kind of uh, problem? Uh, I do think, uh, which came up on the Q&A episode in, in regards to the Catholic Church, um, that was about this. In which you made an appearance and I did. asked the question. I, I, yeah, I, that, that was not an intentional thing. I ended up going sort of almost accidentally and asked a question, which we should come back to that question, I think. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they were talking about clericalism, um, which certainly in, in a very strict hierarchy like the Catholic Church is a major problem. But I, I think a lot of the nominations still have it, um, that we tend to see um, pastors and leaders because they're leading us in spiritual matters and because we want them to be models. And all of that is a good thing, but then um, I, there's too much sort of uh, putting them on a pedestal. So so that's interesting because at one level, is a Christian church always going to have a level of 
clericalism, whether whether they're Catholic or Baptist or Pentecostal or Anglican, we do have ministers, um, and and so they're going to they're our leaders, they're our spiritual guides. Mm. Are we always going to be tempted to uh, think? Far too much of these, and allow these people to, which is really us people, by the yeah, way, yeah. to um, well, I just be ref- above contradiction. I was just reflecting. I mean, I think part of that is ministers. It's a really difficult job to be a minister, and it kind of does help you if you feel like, you know, you can just easily say, "Oh, I know, don't question me." <laughs> um, but I know there was. I remember one of the times I was inducted into a pastoral role, and and the way that they're talking about me in the induction, I thought like, wow, I, I really like the person you're talking about. Can she I meet them? Fantastic. <laughs> <laughs> it's not me, and and that was a heavy, a really heavy weight. And I think the temptation is then to try and then put a mask up, um, so that people can't see that you don't meet that. Um, but I think what we do need to respond to as ministers is to say we are human. We are str- there needs to be a vulnerability and a willingness to admit faults and so on from ministers. And I think that that has been something that um, we haven't done so well in the past. And I think part of that is therefore the formation that we do when we're training our ministers needs to be very aware of issues like power dynamics. And I think that that has started to happen more and more. But we need to realise that. Those things um, are as important in terms of the training and formation of a minister as getting the Bible and theology in because Bible and theology happen in a context and people need to know how they work through in context. So if we keep them too abstracted, um, we'll end up with ministers who are really unprepared for um, what is an almost impossible role sometimes. Yes, I mean, uh, just, I mean, you forget that uh, because you've actually spent some time, we live in an expertise culture, you spent some time studying the Bible, you're an expert in the Bible. So mm. um, people think of you as uh, as an expert, they think of you then as spiritually mature as well. Mm. And maybe theological education hasn't done enough to spiritually mature, um, mature us and hasn't focused on that. Um, also, uh, I think that uh, well, I wanted to ask the question though: is is this the case of we've just not been alert to the possibility of people with real personality disorders getting through mm. and not being kind of screened out of ministry and then being trusted, or is this a case of even ordinary people like 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 I'm going to say us? Are we, are we ordinary? Um, <laughs> <laughs> that depends on what uh, even the mentally yeah. healthy person goes through and. And uh, is is then in minister in the context of ministry is tempted to abuse their power. Uh, I think there's probably a combo of both, and I'm sort of taking abuse in a broader sense now because I think, I mean, I think that the people who abuse children there's pro- there is some deep seated stuff there, you know. But in terms of other types of abuse of the power, I think. Um, a lot of all of us can be tempted into different types of abuses of power. Um, I do think part of that is the screening process, and I think often we've been looking for the wrong things. What have we been looking for? <laughs> <laughs> well, um, so I've actually served on that committee um, for the Baptists, uh, and I think they're getting a really rigorous process, actually. But um, but there is sort of a. a and I'm using the word boy advisedly, <laughs> a golden boy kind of thing, the kind of kid that ends up a school captain and so on. Hey. 
Were you school captain? Yes. <laughs> you know, his parents are the right people. <laughs> um, but but that's not necessarily someone who's going to do – the kind of person that presents well in an initial interview for something isn't necessarily the person who's going to be great in a pastoral so how do you situation. how do you test them, test them? And is it really uh, is it about that? And also about saying, look, if you're going to come into this, um, you, you're going to be subject to scrutiny and accountability, and that's that's not negotiable. You, you you are not allowed to just sit up there and not have someone that's actually. Well, I, I think that's the case, and I think denominations are doing that. Um, and I think some of the older ministers who who weren't used to that kind of arrangement have been a bit resistant but I don't think there's any way past it I think we need to have um, you know not just accountability structures but also structures where people have um, people that they can talk things through with and so mentoring structures and so on I mean you'd think though that the the Catholic Church with its hierarchy would have set up a I mean that is an accountability structure of a kind though isn't it? they have bishops and they have they have um, people above them, the cardinal, etc. You know, all the way up to Rome. It's an international structure of accountability where you then confess your sins. Well, in I guess, I guess that comes I mean, into another aspect, actually, which is, and, and that comes up in when we look at spotlight. But all um, of everything's going to sort of intertwine today. But they did actually sort of have some ways of dealing with it, but they were really bad ways of dealing with it. So it's not that they didn't pick it up. And I think part of that is we try and avoid reputational damage. And often in trying to avoid reputational damage, we do much more real damage. And that's something, that's a temptation to avoid reputational damage that we need to resist. Yes. Um, I, I can't even think of an exception. It just needs to be resisted. Um, if, if any institution should be transparent and honest and admit its frailties, it should be the church. Yes, I think that's that's a, there's a theological uh, change that has to happen here, which is to say, actually, no, it's okay to admit our brokenness, our frailty, our mistakes as authentic, because that's actually when we're the strongest, because that's who we are actually. Mm-hmm. Um, it's our Pharisaism that's got us into trouble here. Um, I mean, I I kind of understand it. Um, I understand why people have covered up in the sense that, you know, I'm trying to run a, a, a parish and I'm interested in the reputation of the the parish and the diocese I work for and I hate it when, it, you know, something happens and I, I want to also protect um, people from their own, their own uh, folly and their own mistakes, you know, and I believe in forgiveness and I believe that there should be second chances and I believe even a pedophile is not beyond the grace of God, right? But. But, but, but. But there's, there's responses that need to take awareness of the reality of sin and um, the consequences that has for other people. So, um, you know, and you hear forgiveness talked about often f- about the people with power um, while there's less care sometimes of um, people who are much more vulnerable uh, in terms of the kind of grace that needs to be given to them. Well, c- that- certainly, yeah. I mean, that that was what's been that's what's been shocking is this sort of, well, this poor guy. He's just you know he's obviously lonely and he's uh, he's made a mistake and uh, he won't do it again and he's he's confessed all and uh, in the privacy of the confession and we can just put him somewhere else. He'll have a new start and it'll all be fine. And I think that that is, I think, in 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 trying to avoid reputational damage, we actually do our reputation good if we not just squarely say yes, we did wrong. But, but but do so in a way that actually admits the gravity 
of it. We shouldn't um, resile from the gravity of offence. So I want to speak to potential victims of of any church abuse at this point and say, because I know that the real, what I hear from victims saying is there's a real um, tension between their love of the church and of Jesus, which Mm. has not necessarily disappeared at all, um, and the, the pain that they're feeling and then the paradox that they have or the tension that they have of thinking, if I come forward, I will damage the church and I don't want to do that. Mm. But I want to say, actually, it's the loving thing to do to, to confront the evildoer with his or her evil. It's actually, it actually is the best. It is actually a gift to the church institution because it tells, it, it, it tells truth to it. And and so and helps the church to heal. We can't heal without the truth and acknowledgement of the the wound. Yes, which isn't to say, oh, if you're a victim, you must come. You must come forward. It's to say um, uh, to put the burden on you as the victim. But to say, if you do come, fo- if you do come forward and speak the truth, is actually a loving and beneficial. It's a great gift to those you speak truth to. Talking about the coming forward thing, because I think that that's understandably really difficult for people um, because they feel that that hasn't availed people in the past and, and they get re-traumatised. Um, that was part of where my question, coming back to Q&A, which was... I'm a female Baptist minister and so my question's to you, Christina Keneally. Um, my experience has been that a lot of women who've experienced abuse from own, in my own tradition but also from other traditions where there's few or no female clergy come to me yep. to tell me those stories. And so I was wondering with your um, studies in theology and your experience as a female political leader, what mm-hmm. difference would it make to abuse within the church if we had more women in positions and having voices of influence? It came up when you were on the drum as well. Yes. So you had the unenviable task of being a ministerial talking head on the drum. Yes, and that was entirely uh, coincidental or providential, mm. depending on where, the way you look <laughs> at it, and that I was lined up to go on the program, and then at 11 o'clock that day, uh, Pell's conviction was mm. uh, made public. And so uh, that was all a bit of a surprise, and, uh, and and so a very difficult day, obviously not a great day to be, well, um, a, a great duty to have at one level, but also uh, a really tough, really tough day to be on. It's a sombre day, and I think uh, the best defence is actually acknowledging where you've, where you've made a terrible mess and uh, actually looking the mess straight in the face. And this is the day I, I'm shocked and appalled by, by, the, uh, by the verdict and really grieved for, for the victim. And he's exactly right when he says the rhetoric about caring for victims and for children now must be backed up with action. And that's the only way that churches like mine and the Catholic Church can win credibility back is by actually matching actions to the words. That will take time because when you make an apology and when you seek um, restoration and reconciliation, it takes time to see that your actions are actually matching your words. And I understand, I understand that perfectly. Fortunately, you kind of moved on. You didn't have to answer this question. <laughs> so what was the question? What was the question? <laughs> well, people were saying, well, one of the problems in the Catholic Church is um, that it's only male priests. Um, and I guess I would probably say not just women, but a more diverse um, uh, leadership in general. Oh, I think that that's one of the answers. Cause, and so the, what I said to preface... Um, I questioned in Q&A was that I find as a female minister that um, people, women, 
particularly from other, not just women, but from other traditions will tell me their stories. Um, and, it, and it makes me realise that um, I feel more safe to them or more able to, that maybe I might understand better because I am a woman. And whether that's true or not in any particular circumstance, I think it shows that we need people that people can feel that they can reveal themselves to, that they can trust. And that happens with a more diverse and particularly with having women in leadership. Um, And obviously, (laughs) that is a question that could be asked, say, of your uh, Anglican diocese. And and, I mean, it could be asked back to Baptists as well. So I want to ask questions first. Uh, And and, uh, I want to say, uh, you've revealed something of the answer there in that by having diverse leadership, people can feel more represented in uh, you you as as a woman you uh, by seeing women in leadership a woman in leadership you you feel like you you have representation or a voice in in the position of authority and mm. power um, is that the reason it, because it was a bit unexplained it's been said many times oh if they had more women you know they've got an all-male priesthood and that's the problem but I'm trying to find out what the what's the I don't disagree with that but just why is that? Are women somehow, do they have a different moral vision? Have they, are they morally superior? Are they, um, uh, what, what is it um, they offer? <laughs> I think it's probably a, a multiple, because I was just talking about the perception of, of the person who wants to come forward. But yes, I think it's more than that. Um, and there is studies that have shown that um, the more that you have uh, a particular group within leadership, the more the interests of that group are recognised and protected. So it's protective for... So that's why having a diverse leadership is good. Um, I think one of the things is that you need people in positions of power and influence who have experienced in some way what it is to not have power and women in general do have that to varying degrees, obviously. Um, and I think, so. people of colour have that and so on. And so that, it's not that it's superior. It's that there is a very necessary perspective there. So an additional perspective uh, which, which enriches the leadership of, of the, of the group, opens up the leadership of the group, perhaps speaks into the clubbishness of, of the group, which has been what's got churches into, into, into trouble here. Yes, I think so. It's going to... Yeah, I mean, one, it just breaks open some of that uh, old boys' network, if you want to call it the clubbishness. Uh, but also um, um, people who haven't always had all of the privilege uh, are more likely to see how it operates and, and be more suspicious, I think, of uh, people in places of power. No, totally. And I, I mean, uh, so from the diocese where, Sydney Anglican Diocese, where we don't ordain women to the priesthood, we have women ordained mm. as, as deacons, so uh, they are reverends, um, but they don't lead parishes. Uh, that means that on our synod, we we uh, we, we necessarily have a, a predominance of men because only rectors go, um, plus lay people. I think it is, the onus is on us to make sure that our, our leadership has a uh, does have a, a a genuine partnership between men and women, and does express the diversity of the church. I don't think we need to necessarily change our theology to do that. That is, I think, I think actually a genuine 
what we call complementarian theology believes in partnership. So it does it does say that um, that women will will bring something different, and so and so in fact it's actually authentic if there is if there are ways. Uh, if we find ways in which that is that is opened up and shared, so, I, I, so I, very yeah, gently, <laughs> I would say there is a greater risk for people with complementarian theology. Um, yes, I agree that there are ways that you can seek to counteract that, and I would urge you to do so. Uh, but on the other hand. Uh, if, in churches which allow women to be ordained, there are still issues in terms of getting the female voice listened to and getting women into particular positions. So it, it is a call generally, I think. Yeah, just just uh, changing the uh, the legality or the, the, your theology doesn't resolve the problem. No, necessarily. because it's such, so. Um, and I would say you're right. There is a greater risk. Uh, there is a greater risk. Um, someone else has said, um, Joseph McSkimming has said, in a complementarian situation, you have the potential for abuses of power to increase exponentially. I think that is true. I think we need to recognise that if that's our theology, we have a great danger of becoming uh, a toxic boys' club and um, of of perpetuating a sort of a, the kind of abuse we've seen, not allowing for our sisters to actually be heard. So, I, I, I mean, I take that as kind of... I, I really want to see that change. I think we could really do much better. Yeah, and I think that um, there needs to be people... I mean, and I think that you have owned that in the past as well, um, to your credit. But I think that I've seen some pushback from other men who were like, oh, it's all the fault of feminism. Um, and that that denies and refuses to look at um, the, the power abuse that has gone on since history began. Um, and if we recognise that as something that happens with humans and power, then we need to have processes and transparency um, that is complete recognition. You know what we talked about last time, total depravity. If, if that's our theology then we need to have a church that is structured to take account of that reality. You're, you're, I totally agree. And I think um, I would speak to my complementarian brothers and sisters and say we need to actually live out our own creed. I, I actually think to be authentically complementarian, you need to recognise that. That, mm. is, that is, I think, if you're going to say there is a difference between men and women, then you have to actually say that's, that is God's gift to us and we need to actually have that expressed in the way we do stuff. Um, so, so I would certainly say that. It's more difficult for the Roman Catholic Church because of their view of ordination where they have a kind of, uh, it's, it's actually a sacrament and uh, they, they have a theology or tradition which says that um, Jesus was male, appointed mm. male apostles, uh, to do the sacrament, and so therefore, that sacramental ministry they say is is male. Don't two they? things to say to that: one is I actually believe that there are lots of mechanisms to get lay people involved in um, positions of influence in the Catholic Church. I believe so. Get women into those, um, just as you were saying about your own context. But I think also it's not to say that our theology is determined by some of these questions, but certainly I think that we these questions can take us back to look at the Bible and, and, and say, is this a necessary part of our theology or was that in itself part of a context? And is some of the questions coming out of this context helping us to see that? So uh, taking us back to the Bible, 
to, to revisit our spiritual yeah. sources, which I yeah. think I, I I also wanted to say actually this terrible terrible moment. And I don't know. I think I don't think we've really realised how mm. epochal uh, this the moment uh, where the most senior um, church figure in the land in the Roman Catholic Church is put in jail, convicted mm. of, of of the very crime that has been besmirching the whole church's reputation and indeed the church itself, not just reputation. Um, that is uh, just an extraordinary moment and uh, I feel devastated and I'm not a Catholic. I feel devastated. Mm. I feel like this is just awful. But I feel like it's also a moment for – it's a moment at which the Spirit of God may do an extraordinary work, might bring us to repentance and and therefore even renewal. It's a moment in which we stop relying on our own strengths and our own our own feelings of um, entitlement and, and all of a sudden yes. we're broken open to do to do to be something that God might make us. And you you talked about renewal I think both in um, your Sydney Morning Herald article and also when you're on the drum and there's a little bit pushback of oh that's all well and good but where's the action? Um, and I think that's some of the people not understanding what you're saying because <laughs> yeah. I think that you would say the renewal requires action. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and and you can't, I can't just sit here and say, we need spiritual renewal and that's enough. It actually needs to be demonstrated. Yeah. And I guess the thing to say, that is a painful process. Renewal is a painful process unless we are going to commit ourselves to a lot of that pain and say that that is required to be done because the church needs to properly represent Christ in the world, then we're not going to get anywhere. No, we need to be on our knees. Yeah. Well, we've just been talking about some really tough and heavy uh, things, but we also want to let you know about uh, something that's happening for us, which is a live audience-included podcast on April the 11th at uh, Paddington Anglican for Peace Talks at 7pm. Yeah, it's at Five Ways in Paddington. Uh, parking's a little difficult, so... Uh, park early and park, park often. Park <laughs> early and park often. Grab yourself a great Italian meal and a lovely coffee, uh, Paddington style, and come and hear us uh, talk about fear and anxiety in politics. And you can put us on the spot and ask us questions. So go get free tickets. Uh, there'll be a link in our show notes. So we have a new segment now. It's called You Did What Now? <laughs> Uh, looking at what the other M has been up to, so um, this is uh, in, in this case, uh, Megan has been busy writing in eternity. She's questioning power, and so she she wrote a, an article uh, trying to kind of pick up three threads that have been running, or, or to to find the thread in three sort of issues that have been running. Mm. Um, the Jordan, the arrival of Jordan Peterson, uh, the Canadian. Uh, professor of psychology and uh, self-help guru and uh, Franklin Graham's tour and we talked about Franklin Graham back in January I think and yes. the conviction of Cardinal Pell all happened in a in a blur of a couple of weeks there mm. and uh, caused a lot of social media discussion amongst Christians <laughs> um, of course because Christians uh, were on both sides of these conversations and in particular... Yeah, I, I, I sort of picked three conversations that, you know, look, I, I broadened out the number of people I could offend, basically. <laughs> well done, well done. And yes. uh, did you get some kickback from this? Well, people loved it or hated it, I think. There were some interesting comments on the uh, Eternity Facebook page. I did stop reading the comments, I have to say. Yeah, I think you were called... Which people call the 11th uh, commandment. 
Sorry? Yes, yes. And I think people called you a heretic and someone accused you of being a feminist. Um, yeah, n- n- nicely picked. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. So, uh, interestingly, heated, heated topics. And um, Michael Bird, as you say in your article, uh, who wrote an article about uh, Franklin Graham, mm. is still receiving criticism uh, about that article. Mm. And um, I'll try and... I'll, See if I can kind of pick up what you were trying to say and you can correct correct me. Yeah. I think you were trying to say, look, in these situations, it seems that um, people have uh, felt that uh, society uh, has been criticising the church over Peterson, Graham and Pell or people to a progressive end. Yes. And so people have felt that they needed to... That's a to... good point. I should have put that in the article, Michael. <laughs> <laughs> I thought you did. Um, well, um, perhaps more explicitly. And... and, <laughs> yes. and, and, and People in the, in the church have been mm. jumping up to defend those. And so we love Jordan Peterson because he seems to be saying some things in society, which in, into the social realm, into the culture war, which um, finally uh, kick back against some of the things that have been criticizing Christians. Mm. Uh, Franklin Graham, well, he's, again, he's sitting on the right of uh, politics. He's not politically correct. And also he's come here to preach the gospel after all and... Uh, by all means, by all accounts, it was successful. And then George Pell, some people have been saying, look, he can't have possibly done it mm. uh, and rushed to defend him, even though we didn't see all the evidence. In fact, nobody except the jury and the judge saw all the evidence. Yeah, because it was a closed court Indeed. for part of it. And you've got, a, you've got an issue with this. <laughs> um, well, I think it's good how you bring out the fact that, um, yes, we see them as taking a particular position towards society, I suppose, but I was trying to say, however, how are we approaching them in the church? Um, and I think that that wasn't necessarily clearly seen by people, uh, perhaps a lack of my clarity. Um, and I think the other thing that you just brought up out of that was that it was because all those conversations were happening all at the same time. So I got some kickback on, oh, you just don't like conservatives. Now, a year ago or something, when all the stuff was happening with Hollywood, I could well have picked out something to make a very similar point. Um, except that the church would go, oh, well, that's Hollywood. And what I was trying to say was that um, we do have a problem in the church with sort of um, adulating particular people and making that to a point where they become unquestionable. It's very difficult to question them. And so whether or not it almost – I sort of tried to give context with what people were saying about the different men there, but that's almost – unimportant in a way, mm-hmm. in the sense of what I was trying to say was that um, we need to not shut down the questioner, even if in the end we say, no, okay, that's not validated. So so um, is your point in this article, not so much, pardon me, to criticise Jordan Peterson, which you've done, for example, which you've done Which before, I've done in the past, yeah. <laughs> but to say, what I'm seeing, what I'm seeing is... People like Jordan Peterson, they think he's he's kind of aligned, Christian aligned in some way. They see resonances. Mm. They see so much uh, his his traction with with young men, for instance. They say this is this is actually something fresh and different that we can we can really get on board with. Um, and then they shut down any criticism of Jordan Peterson because because the criticism itself then therefore is anti-Christian. Whereas there might be some. Mm. There is actually a conversation to be had here. Is that is well, that what you're getting Well, I think we, we tend to like – also we think um, – like I think Franklin Graham, people saw sort of a hope that here we might be going to 
go into the age of revival again like it was with Billy Graham. I think, mm. as you're saying, with Jordan Peterson, people are saying, oh, he's going to help us um, address the problem of bringing young men into the church. Um, and, and in our race to embrace something which we think could be helpful, let us not forget that people are human um, and we need to be uh, rigorous in terms of being able to look at how they're living their lives, um, their thought processes and where they may lead. And the interesting thing about Jordan Peterson was what I was seeing online, um, people saying, well, he's talking truth to power. But in terms of the church context, the people that I saw that were coming out saying extremely positive stuff about Jordan Peterson um, and, and being resistant to those who wanted to critique it were male ministers. Do you see what I'm saying? No, I do. And partly that's, uh, is it because our perception is that we are the minority in society? We are the, we are the, uh, the marginalized. And so, um, you know, when we, when, when I encounter most of the mainstream media, I do not feel it represents me, mm. uh, as a Christian whatsoever. I think, I think it, I, I think it, I think there's definitely, uh, uh, unquestionably a kind of bias and a, a worldview which, which you see, uh, which is almost dogmatic, and and uh, my experience of the mainstream media has been that they live in a thought bubble. I mean, they they really all live in the same area. They all have the same education. They all agree with each other, even though they're trying. You know, the, the charter is sometimes to provide balance. They do balance. Well, it depends on which part of the media. Certainly, there are elements of the media now which have uh, which which have a different view. So it's worth yeah. it's worth pointing that out. But that's that that's the sort of talk. So we feel. We uh, we white male ministers feel like, <laughs> and uh, we feel like we're the min- we're, we're the minority. But you're saying, hang on, it's more, there are more circles than that because in the church that mm. you're in, you're not the minority. And I guess I'd you're, like to see you're not powerless. You're in power. Just as I should take my experience of being a woman and some of the feel it, like the experiences of not being heard and so on, and apply that to other groups who have less privilege than I do, I would like to see some of those um, male ministers apply that feeling, that, that experience of feeling marginalised and realise, therefore, who are, how it must feel and what it must be like for the marginalised within the church. Right, right, right. So how am I to do that? So say, just say, I think Jordan Peterson's got something to say and I think most of the criticism is misplaced or some of the criticism is valid and I've, I've written a piece where I, I think he's Pelagian I don't think you know I kind of was mm. critical of him um, but I think he's got some stuff to say what should I do which then recognises this this feeling of being marginalised amongst my my flock well there there are people there who see him as the voice of oppressive oppressive power of, of male dominance once a month well I more. think Asking questions rather than immediately shutting down um, and asking questions in a way where you legitimately – there's a kind of question that you can see where you, the person is just setting you up because then they're going to say, oh, but um, not that kind. Uh, but also, look, I've been called – I mean, I can kind of cope with this, but um, others not so much. I, I, I've been called stupid or um, – Variations upon that for what I said about Peterson. That kind of talk is going to by a woman. Down. I think that was actually. Yeah, well, women aren't <laughs> immune to this kind of bad behaviour. <laughs> yes, the one on attorney's page. But look, it's not just one instance. It's been a common response that I've experienced. That oh, you haven't understood Peterson, or, and therefore you're stupid, rather than 
engaging people as peers in the discussion. I think that's, I think a lot of the people who've been trying to talk back have felt like the person who said, you're not my peer. Right, right. Okay. So there's a sort of condescension mm. um, and uh, a triumphalism in the way in which this has been uh, carried out. Um, an assumption also of almost a conspiracy. I think um, the assumption in the, in the case of George Pell is that, uh, oh, they must have been out to get him. Um, there must be some kind of conspiracy and uh, surely he'll be um, he'll be, you know, he'll be cleared at the appeal um, without recognising that for victims that's an extremely difficult and emotional process to go through uh, and to contemplate. Mm, mm. Um, yeah, yeah. That, that I think that's an empathy. There needs to be some empathy to go. Okay, we're feeling embattled and so on. Can you imagine what it's like to be people who've had terribly traumatic experiences or have not had the power that you have? How do they feel? Maybe we should listen to them as we start to question things. And if you want to read Megan's article in Eternity, it's in our show notes. You can find the link there. Marg and Dave, reviews from two people obsessed by stories, but not always the same ones. But I think we both um, liked this one. Well, not like is the wrong word. We both thought this was a good movie. Uh, Spotlight, which came out in 2015, uh, which follows the Boston Globe Spotlight team and its investigation into cases of child sex abuse in um, Boston by a great number of uh, Roman Catholic priests. More than 100 in the end, wasn't it? Yeah, and this film ended up winning, winning the 2015 Best Picture Oscar and it's on Netflix currently if you want to go watch it. Um, and I thought this was a fantastic film because it didn't just tell the story but it looked at the layers of power and the layers of culpability. Yeah, it did. It did. Um, I mean, it, it showed... Uh, I mean, at the centre of this is a character you hardly ever see. And that's mm. what's interesting to me. You hardly ever see a priest. And you meet the cardinal, Cardinal Law, who's really the, the kind of villain, mm. for just one moment. And you're reminded, actually, and the truth is he was a great um, civil rights campaigner in the 1960s. Mm. And that brought to me, actually, there's a, there's a sense in which that the paradox of this institution that wants to do good and has many good people in it, but yet is infected by this virus... Um, is blind to its own uh, it, 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 its own corruption um, is comes through even though that's in one sense off offshore offshore we don't see a lot of we don't encounter a lot of that church hierarchy stuff what we see is the the grandmother of one of the journalists who's a devout Catholic for instance and her her um, conflictedness about her grandmother's faith and what this will mm. do to her grandmother's faith. Well, almost all of the, the actual Spotlight team, because they're Bostonian natives, have some Catholic background. I mean, Boston is an incredibly Catholic city. Um, and that, I think, helps to see why the problem existed because the relational network um, between everybody, uh, you can see that people are just leaning on each other right, left and centre to not say anything, to not go further. And so it continues to occur. And so you have the people who are doing the wrong thing, but then there's layers of everyone's protecting someone else down the line. Lawyers are protecting people. Yeah. Journalists are protecting people or burying things. Well, that, I mean, that's the th what comes out in it is that the Boston Globe, which is sort of trying to uncover this and uh, tells off some of the sources they're trying to get, is discovered to have themselves covered it up some years prior 
Um, and so you realise that in this situation, the church, um, the media, the law, they've all been contributing to the cover-up. And that to me is the moral brilliance of this film, is the, mm. is the kind of right at the end, um, the, the way in which the journalist... There's no triumphalism. He mm. says, yes, we buried this for 20 years and I, I was the one. In fact, it mm. turns out the guy leading the spotlight team, the investigation, had actually not pursued a story um, uh, of a massive abuse 20 years or not 20 years before. Mm. It's 20 years, 25 years from now. Um, it, it was 10 years before uh, the actual uh, revelations that came place. And and so I thought that was chilling because it said we're all in a way – went when we're in these sorts of networks mm. we're all culpable we're all we're all we have a responsibility and uh, we may overlook it and and part of the um, answer therefore is admitting our culpability and then still being able to move forward yeah that's hard to do though because yeah. of this the 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 shame can be crushing yeah um yeah, I, I thought that the way that it dealt with all the different ways that we all contribute to a kind of system that means that things aren't challenged or things get covered up was really important and made this really good watching for people who who can't um, who, who need to understand more how that occurs because uh, it just brought it out so brilliantly that some quite good people were still being part of the problem. So, could you say this is an anti-Catholic film? Uh, it certainly, I think, showed some of the the ways that the Catholic Church operates that became part of the problem. Um, but it was more um, conflicted than that. And and one of the things that's brought out as, as, as devastatingly tragic within it is the way that it impacted the faith of the journalists and other people. Yes. And, I mean, it wasn't all disastrous in a way. They, they, it did impact them, but they still they were still wrestling with with it too. Like it wasn't like they all just decided to become atheists. No, but a lot of them were finding it really hard to go to church, and um, it's incredibly sad. And you didn't really find out whether where they were going there. And I found that too when I uh, was at Q and A, and and there were several people from a Catholic background on the panel, and they were all just their incredible ambivalence of wanting to love the church, but but not knowing whether the church was to be trusted or whether the, even just going to church made them complicit with what had happened. That was yes, I know. terrible um, decision. Former Premier Senator C- Christina Keneally doesn't mm. go to church anymore because she doesn't want to prop it up. She's sort of withdrawn from church, but she's she's still a Catholic. She won't go to another church. Yeah. Um, and uh, she still holds her faith. I don't think she's lost her faith. Um, is this a problem, though, of um, uh, of, of making the institution the same as the the faith itself, as in the belief is as much in the institution as it is in the the, the faith. Um, mm. Do we do we in Protestant circles have less of this problem? Oh, I think it just manifests differently. <laughs> to be honest, let's not exonerate ourselves on that one. Um, the problem is is that people do need other people around them like faith is a communal exercise and um, when the church doesn't deal with things um, people's faith does get compromised and we need to we need to own up to that um, that culpability as well with all due respect is hosted by michael jensen and me megan pal this episode was produced by alexander bennett and bella ann sanchez and the sound design was done by adam jones 
You can subscribe to With All Due Respect on iTunes, Spotify, or any of the other places you get your podcasts. And you can help us out by rating and reviewing the show on iTunes. That helps people to find out about the show and what it's about. I really encourage you to check out our show notes because they'll help you go deeper on some of the really important, interesting issues that I think we discuss. You can find them at eternitynews.com.au slash respect. And you can come be part of the Respectful Conversation over on the Eternity News Facebook page or engage with us on social media.